And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to... Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a contender. Fasten your seat. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Yeah. All real man. Love is, is Love. too weak a word. Stay back. I loathe you. I love you. I love you. I did as you Don't laugh! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie! Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to Green Book. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 147 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. Time of recording, 11.07 a.m. on June 16th, 2019. Happy Father's Day to all the dads that are listening out there. I am Matt Neglia and joining me for this podcast, I have Josh Parm. Hello, hello. And Daniel Bear. Happy Daddy's Day, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well... It is Father's Day out there, and we have a couple of different topics that I want to discuss on this on this week's show. Um, one thing I thought that would be fun to talk about are some of your favorite dads from 2019 so far. Another thing that we're going to talk about is what is going on with the summer movie blockbuster season right now, and a lot of underperforming titles out there. We're going to take a deep dive into that. We're also going to go over the polls, and we're going to talk about the trailer for Doctor Sleep this week. But First and foremost, let's start off with the question. Let's touch base with everyone, see what they've been watching. Josh, what did you catch up on this week? Uh, well, I actually caught up on a lot of stuff this week. I saw six movies this week. Damn, boy. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you want me to talk about all of them, but <laughs> I did got I didn't manage to get to quite a bit this week. Um, the first thing I saw was a documentary called 5B. And it's a documentary about the AIDS crisis in the 80s, and it's good. Um, It's not the best movie about the subject. Uh, I think the scope of it is a little bit too wide to really make a huge impact on its subjects. But, you know, it's an important topic. I thought it was necessary. And, yeah, it's a good movie. It's not great, but I I do think that it's one that's really good. Uh, And then after that, I saw... The Gangster, The Cop, The Devil. What? I haven't even heard of this. That looks really weird and good. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a Korean movie, uh, a Korean thriller. And essentially the premise is a uh, gangster gets attacked by a serial killer. He lives and then he ends up joining forces with this like rogue detective to pull the resources to try to catch him. And it's. You know, if you are familiar with like those pulpy Korean crime thrillers, it's very much in those vein. And it's not the best that the genre has to offer. But if you are a fan of those types of movies like I am, I think you will really enjoy it. it it's very fun, entertaining, mo- like most of those kinds of movies are. So I would recommend it, especially if you are a fan of those types of films. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, then after that, I saw Late Night. Oh, yeah. Really enjoyed. Oh, I really enjoyed Late Night. It's so charming and fun. uh, Yeah, Josh, uh, you know, just in regards to Late Night, I'm curious to know, was it just like, was it the humor, the characters? What what worked for you specifically about that film? Because I'm actually surprised that the movie is not quite taking off the way that I expected it to when I last saw it at Sundance. Uh, I mean, for me, I really just loved those characters. And I thought that the way that the script 
handled their interactions and like their banter and the dialogue. I thought all of that was really well done and so uh, smartly observed. And obviously, you stick Emma Thompson in anything, she's going to be great. I thought Mindy Kaling was also wonderful. Like, you know, I think that there is like a particular subplot concerning the Me Too movement that I didn't really care for that much but overall i thought the movie was just so delightfully charming and funny i i really just was smiling all the way through nice nice glad to hear it uh do you think that emma thompson will uh gain any traction in the award season conversation uh i think the movie would have had to have done better financially uh, to really do that i could see golden globes but i think to get to the oscars that would that's going to be a really big challenge i think for that movie yeah yeah I feel the same way as well. And I've been hearing a lot of people saying, oh, there's a chance they could campaign her in supporting. And it's like, stop, just please stop. No, they're they're no, co-leads. No, no, no that, that's not. Yeah, that's absolutely not. not. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're co-leads. Yeah. yeah, I understand if you want to contend her in supporting for the chance of her getting a nomination. But that's exactly the kind of practice that we should not be condoning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no she is a, a lead in that movie through and through. Yeah. Um, but then after that, I saw The Dead Don't Die. Okay, yeah, lay it on for me with this one, because, woof. All right, so, first of all, I'm not a huge Jim Jarmusch fan. I appreciate some aspects of his movies, but normally I'm not that big of a fan of his. And I gotta say, I was genuinely surprised by how much I actually liked this movie. It has a very dry sense of humor, and I can understand it not working for a lot of people, but... I don't know, whatever it was that day, I was just sort of in the same frequency of this movie, and I ended up liking it. It's not perfect, that I think it loses a lot of steam towards the end of the film, but for it being a kind of irreverent, very dry sense of humor type of a movie that understands that there are better zombie movies that it's kind of referencing, but being okay with it, I actually found myself enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. I have to say that I definitely enjoyed it more than I thought I would as well. I had a good time. I laughed pretty much all throughout the movie. I liked a lot of the humor. I just, there. Hmm, I don't feel that he tied everything together at the end. I felt like he was throwing so many ideas at the dartboard and he was hoping to hit the bullseye and he did not quite do that for me. There's like plot lines that get completely forgotten about. Uh, the characters start getting very self-referential. And it all started to kind of just fall apart for me a little bit. I agree with you that the ending does sort of fall apart. I, I will agree with you there. But I think maybe just because my like entry point for Jarmusch is always just so so hard for me to find. And I, I have such a difficult time connecting to his movies that because I found myself enjoying much of the humor in – most of the movie, even though it kind of lost me at the end, I still appreciated all the stuff that it was doing up until that point to get me to actually enjoy the film. But I totally understand why for a lot of people it's like, I think if you are a fan of Jarmusch, I could see this being like lesser of his work, but because I'm not that big of a fan, maybe that was the reason I could enjoy it a bit more. So yeah, I get that. Yeah. All right. So then last two movies, I'm almost done. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The the next one that I saw was a movie that has a terrible title, and I can't believe they released it in theaters with this title, called Poppy Chulo. Yeah. And and this movie, the way I can describe it, if I'm doing the elevator pitch, is imagine Green Book 
but gay and Mexican. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it's probably just about as good as that premise would make you think it is. And I think much like Green Book, it is a movie that has good intentions, but deals with some very tricky uh, racial commentaries that it does not really interrogate that much. Mm. And I think it's a shame because we don't get a lot of movies that are about the gay community that talk about these racial politics that obviously exist even within this ostracized community at times. And I think it's unfortunate. Um, the performances in the film are decent. It's got Matt Bomber in it, who I'm a fan of, but the movie kind of does feel like it, you're swimming in the mind of a middle-aged gay white man going through a midlife crisis and to be stuck in that for like an hour and a half, this wasn't the best <laughs> place to be. So, uh, speaking of films that make good racial uh, commentary, though, I just wanted to throw this out there really quick. Uh, the Hate You Give is now streaming on HBO. Fuck yeah. Oh, yeah. This is everyone's chance to catch up on a movie that they did not see last year that they should have seen one last year and is absolutely phenomenal. Year. Yeah. 100%. I would highly recommend that one. Um, mm-hmm. And the last movie, I'll be very quick because it was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. We're going to do a review on it. I'll just say I liked it. It's really good. Uh, it felt a bit overstuffed to me, but the filmmaking, the performances are so great. I do think it's one of the best movies of the year. We are going to be doing a podcast review of that this week, so be on the lookout for that. Dan Bayer, what about yourself? Well, I caught up with Late Night last night. Um, late last night. Haha. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> I was like, where's he going with this? <laughs> um, I really, really enjoyed it. Like a lot. Um, it's probably the most I've ever liked Mindy Kaling on screen, actually, um, in a movie. Uh, and Emma Thompson is, is Emma Thompson. I mean, she can ring, the most pure emotions out of the worst written screenplays. So when she gets a good one, I mean, you can imagine how good she is. And this is a, I thought this is a really, really good screenplay. Um, as far as the dialogue goes anyway, um, the dialogue is just really, really great. I can't count the number of times the entire audience that I saw it with just up as one and laughed or there was one particular moment where everyone sort of went <gasps> uh, in, in, in like awe that a character said the thing that they said because they really shouldn't have said that. Um, Tell me off air. I'm curious. I will. I will. Um, the and it's just like it's just so much fun. It, it plays a little too close to the Devil Wears Prada playbook. Um, a little closer than I would have liked, but I, I, it's, it's still so much fun. Um, I think that everyone should go see it. It's, I mean, like talk about a, a screenplay that is sharp and witty and funny and like feels genuinely of the moment. Like it's really speaking to and about this, the current time and place in a way that's entertaining and, and smart. I, I, I really loved it. I want, I think everyone should see it. I I totally agree. I would highly encourage everyone to check it out. I don't think it's going to be 
someone's favorite movie this year or anything like that. Oh. But just in regards of supporting a smaller film, um, female screenwriter, female director, female led all around. I mean, this is a very entertaining, highly enjoyable film that features good performances from the entire ensemble. I, I love the I love the entire ensemble in that movie. I mean, oh god, yeah, mm-hmm. everybody's utilized so so well. John Lithgow's got a small role and he absolutely crushes it. it. Paul Walter Hauser is hysterical as as is like the norm now. Every time he appears on screen, I find. Oh yeah, he's a guaranteed like singular. Yeah, perfectly cast all around. And the movie has Hugh Dancy, and and they know exactly how to use exactly Hugh Dancy. To use Hugh Dancy. Oh exactly. God. Yes, they know exactly how effectively to use him in this movie. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So, what is there not to love? All right, it might be light. It is a tad bit predictable, but in terms of just getting your, you know, good entertainment for the week, go see Late Night. Mm-hmm. That's a nice female around here. I did see Late Night for a second time this week in anticipation for our podcast review, which I'm really, really glad I did. Um, it's definitely still one of the more enjoyable movies I've seen this year. I've been catching up on a lot of miniseries lately uh, for the Emmys, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to go too much into detail on that because obviously this is a movie podcast, but I watched all of Escaped at Danamora, and I swear to God, the way that that was shot did not at all look like a television show to me. It looked like it was a seven-hour movie. And I just was blown away by Ben Stiller's direction. I think it's the best thing he's ever done before. So that's really great. Filled with awesome performances. Uh, Men in Black International. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, I'll, I'll tie that in into our discussion in a little bit here. But suffice to say... It's yet another disappointing franchise film this summer that has failed to connect with audiences because uh, for a litany of different reasons, uh, we'll we'll get into it. Uh, the big thing, though, that I want to highlight is I saw Toy Story 4, which releases uh, this weekend. My review for it is up on the site. And all I will say about it for now until we get to our podcast review is that I went in very skeptical. I had my arms folded when the movie started. (laughs) My like eyebrow raised and I just was like, hmm, you know, like I I was not I don't want to say I wasn't open to the movie. I'll just say that I was feeling the pressure and the weight that this film had to deliver on because to me, the Toy Story trilogy is perfect. You could put it up there with mm, the Lord agreed. of the Rings, the before trilogy as like the best trilogy of all time. And it totally can get, get in that conversation. Uh, Toy Story four. It's a small miracle that it does not ruin the trilogy. And they legitimately, in my opinion, found a story that was worth telling and needed to be told. We didn't, ever think maybe it needed to be told but it did need to be told Mm. and they told it very very well the humor is still intact it's thrilling the new characters are a delight um it's everything that uh that it's everything that you would hope that the fourth film could potentially be and maybe even then some i'm not saying it's my favorite of the uh four films but i will say that in terms of the quality I think it's up to the level of the other three. It's good to hear because I'm sort of yeah. With, yeah, I'm sort of with you, Matt. That <clears throat> in the beginning, like right now, I am very skeptical about this movie because I do consider that trilogy to be very perfect, and 
I do kind of have my arms folded. So hearing that you went in with a similar mm-hmm. mindset and were won over by it is encouraging to me. And you guys know how hard I can be sometimes, you know? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have not been kind to a lot of movies this year. And this was one that I was dreading. I was literally legitimately dreading it. But I walked out so pleasantly surprised. And it's it's one of my favorite films of the year so far. So there you go. Great to hear. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. That's correct, Brendan. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Good job, Brendan. Thank you, J.D. It's my goal to make you proud. You're the father after all. (laughs) Yes, and I'm very proud. Uh, You can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Brendan, will you please let me complete just one? Nope. Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat J.D. like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, sir. Hey, you you go cry at Midnight Special again, okay? That's what you're good for. I will. You know what? And I'll do it while pummeling you. I'll do both at the same time. How are you going to pummel me? Yeah, I I don't don't buy that. That's just how (laughs) it works. Now, there's a lot of movies this summer that have not been my favorite films of the year so far. And a large reason for that is because, you know, we're seeing with things like Dark Phoenix, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Men in Black International... And maybe even a few others, actually, on top of that, they're just failing to connect with audiences, with critics, and they're not performing well at the box office. And what I'm seeing a lot of people saying is, yeah, the box office is in a bit of a slump right now, but don't worry, don't worry, Toy Story 4 is going to boost it. And then it's like, I also hear people saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, Lion King is going to boost the box office this year. And the theme I'm getting from all of this is that, well, these are all Disney movies, What about anything that isn't a Disney movie that is coming out this summer that has the potential to lift the box office? Because right now, what's really freaking me out is how reliant it feels like the industry is on uh, Disney films to have it be successful. And it's only pushing the narrative forward that a lot of movies are going to eventually move over to uh, streaming, to television. So you're going to get a lot of directors and a lot of uh, filmmakers moving into that realm. And the entire movie cinema going multiplex experience is going to be dominated by these big blockbusters. But it's even going to be worse than we feared because there's a chance that one day, not saying it's tomorrow, not saying it's next year, not saying it's even maybe in our lifetime, but there is a chance that Disney will be the only game in town because it just seems like those are the only movies that people are interested in seeing for some reason. Well, I mean, they also have a monopoly, so. Right. <laughs> and, you know, Dark Phoenix is a kind of a strange one because um, that t- Fox That's is now Fox. owned by yeah. Disney. Yeah. Um, so I don't really count that as much necessarily, but it seems like I'm, I'm, let, let, let's look at the weeks ahead for a minute. This weekend, we have Toy Story 4 coming out. We know that that's going to do major business. Last week of the month, uh, the major release is yesterday. Danny Boyle's uh, latest film. I mean, to be quite honest, I don't see that performing extraordinarily well because a few days after that, Spider-Man Far From Home is going to come out and that's going to make maybe a billion dollars probably. Then the week after that, you have The Farewell, Crawl, and Stuber. 
those movies, none of those movies are going to cross half a million dollars, uh, half a billion dollars at the box office. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, Tarantino always does good business, but he doesn't do blockbuster level business. You know, and the only thing that really I see maybe that could do very, very well in the near future is uh, the Fast and Furious movie, Hobbs and Shaw. That comes out on uh, August 2nd. Well, it's it's so strange that like <laughs> that we're that we're talking about this sort of thing because like I remember, you know, I'm showing my age a little, but I remember back in the day when a hundred million was a blockbuster, you know. Yeah. And I can see like a few of well, I can see certainly Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doing a hundred million, um, but like it seems like anything that isn't an action movie in some way. The, there's no chance in hell that it crosses a hundred million unless it's like a, like La La Land, which was a fluke, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, be, and I think it has to do with the fact that t- movie ticket prices are so high. Right. So people only go to the theater if they're, if they want to like other than, you know, movie buffs and people who like genuinely value the theater experience, which are people who are, you know, that number is dwindling. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's just people want to see something that's going to make it worth them paying, you know, 20, 30, $40 when it's all said and done for, to see. A movie. Yeah, why do I get the feeling sometimes that the reason why movie ticket prices went up was because the movie studios wanted a cheap way for their releases the next year to top what they did the, the, the year prior. So their year-over-year numbers would increase. Yeah, you mean they increased increased the prices to for the movie theaters, and then the movie theaters passed that on to the consumers? Yeah. Because I, I, I wonder, Dan, if the main reason why most people don't go to the movie theater is because of price and people are more picky now about what movies they specifically go see in the movie theater, do you think if – movie going was more affordable for all and prices did drop do you think more people would go to the movie theater or is that an impossibility now because of we're living in the age of streaming which has introduced its own new complication no i think they would honestly like that's the constant refrain that i hear from people is that like well i'm waiting for this to come to streaming because going to the movies is so expensive and they're already play, paying, you know, their 10.99 or whatever it is for per month for Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. So they don't feel the need to spend extra money, especially when it's so expensive to go to the theater. Mm-hmm. Unless it's something that like you quote unquote have to see on the big screen. An example of some films uh, in recently that were not big epic like action films that did well at the box office are a star was born which made 215 million dollars bohemian rhapsody which made a million dollars more than that uh then after that i think the closest thing we have is maybe uh, yeah i guess dr seuss is the grinch which you know mm-hmm. animated films will always have a space mm-hmm. because you know kids. parents gotta take their kids mm-hmm. to see something exactly and so yeah, when you look at the numbers, I mean, other than that, let's go below $200 million for a second. Uh, you have Us, which did $175 million, and Crazy Rich Asians, $174 million. Uh, but after that, it's like, you know, it's all big budget action films from the major studios, and predominantly, it's Disney, 
which now owns Marvel, Star Wars, Fox, and all of these Disney properties from our childhood, mm-hmm. which we are all going to go see based on nostalgia. Yeah, I still haven't seen Aladdin. And, and you know, I'm not saying that this is all necessarily like a bad thing uh, or anything. But what, what what's happening is I can almost get the sense that Disney is strong arming the other studios out of business because if ticket buyers are going to be very picky about what they're going to go see then the chances are yeah of course they're only going to go see disney films i i I feel like because that's where all the major properties are well matt I, i will say that i do think it's a bad thing and it's funny that you bring this up because this was actually really a thought that i had this week where it just really feels like this year right now is going to be a major turning point in the industry with every one of these sequels disappointing outside of, you know, the Disney like remakes and and what they're doing. They're the only ones making money, combined with the fact that this is also the first year that Disney has fully owned Fox and there's rumor going around that if Ad Astra and Ford v Ferrari doesn't do well, then they're going to start pulling back on the adult like dramas that they start to make. And it just feels like this year is going to start a chain reaction where this one company is going to be the only thing that people go and see simply because they make content that reminds them of other movies that they've already made. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the dominant force of what people are going to go see. They're going to pull back on making other types of movies. And this really does feel like where the industry at large is heading. I I don't think that those like other movies are going to completely disappear, but it does seem like we are on the path now of basically summer rolls around and you're just going to be watching Disney movies. And that makes me very sad and disappointed. And I know that there's a lot of people that love the content that they make. And if you do all the more power to you, but I do find it very unsettling that we're relying on one entertainment company to be dominant in terms of what they're putting out there. And I, I really don't like that very much. I also just want to point something else out too, in regards to that, just to help to push along this point, uh, films that got decent reviews for the most part, uh, and are not made by Disney that failed to cross $200 million this year include Shazam, Pokemon Detective Pikachu, John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, How to Train Your Dragon The Hidden World, and as I said before, Us didn't even cross over $200 million at the box office. And on paper, I look at like these movies and I think to myself, these should be crossing $200 million. But, but should they, though? Well, in terms of the critical approval and... The interest for that? Yeah. You, first really, of all, you didn't like, think that Us... John Wick Chapter 3, the third, the second sequel to a movie that did, like, decent business is going to cross $200 million? I mean, well, to John Wick's credit, each film has outgrossed the other. So yeah, what, when they inevitably make a fourth one, maybe that one will be the one to cross over $200 million. Yeah, maybe. But I'm just saying, though, just in regards to the comparisons here against others' films, mm-hmm. it's it's still, it's not healthy. Because you know what it is? I, I guarantee you so many executives out there are not looking at the bottom line necessarily maybe in terms of how much they made against their budget. Mm-hmm. They're looking at the overall number. And everybody just wants to do better than what they did last year based on that overall number. You know, Avengers Endgame, highest grossing this, that, and the other thing. I mean, it's not going to beat Avatar, it looks like now. But $830 million domestically 
now Disney is going to be scrambling to figure out, all right, what can we do in the near future that can get past that and what can get past that and so on and so forth. It's all about doing better year over year from a business standpoint. And what sacrifices are you going to have to make along the way in order to make that happen? You make fewer movies and you make fewer movies that are not based on pre-existing material. Like the reason why a studio like Disney has all these hits is because they don't make a ton of stuff. They are very selective in the types of movies yeah. that they put out there, and they want to make sure that it's based on something that you have already heard about. And that is the way that they do it, and I think that is going to be the method going forward for a lot of these studios to be like, is it something that you've heard of? Okay, we'll do like three or four of those a year and just put most of our resources just into that because that seems to be the only thing that people want to see right now. But even that, like, there's no guarantee that they're going to do well. You know, I think the problem is that they, a lot of these studios, they just don't pick, they don't do a good job of picking those films. Disney does a very good job of picking those films and knowing which of those properties people actually want to see. I mean, like, Pokemon Detective Pikachu, there's a very limited audience for that movie, yet they poured so much money into it. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, um, well, there's a limited audience here for it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Fine. Yes. Going to do much better. And certainly more like a lot of these things become sequels, even though they don't do well here because they do fantastically overseas. That's, that's very true. (laughs) You know what? Like I feel so for, I'll give an example of a small film here, like something like Midsommar, Mm -hmm. right? Ari Aster's follow up to Hereditary. Yeah probably going to outgross Hereditary. I'm going to take a wild guess on this here. I think there's a lot of interest for this movie. And if it does well with critics this week, then I think that Midsommar has a chance to do very, very well at the box office. I'm not saying it's going to be a $200 million blockbuster. But here's the thing, though. I feel like even if it outgrosses its budget and it is considered a box office success, why are we not celebrating and highlighting that so much? It seems like the focus is always on how these other larger films are performing or not performing, and we're sometimes not giving focus to these uh, really, really (laughs) well-made smaller films that typically tend to do, like I said before, very well at the box office, but because they're not $200 million grocers, nobody seems to care. Well, it's because like what you said earlier, like people only care about the record setting. You know, that's what makes news. That's what... (laughs) that's what people talk about i mean you know i would love to see one day like there's a headline where again say uh a spider-man or something like that the the main headline is not spider-man far from home opens up with uh you know 200 million dollar opening gross instead it's Midsummer surprises and opens up with and Spider-Man's like the second blip in the uh, article, you know, because at this point, it's like we should be providing a focus, I feel, to these other smaller films that really genuinely need it. Otherwise, out of sight, out of mind, who's going to care? Well, I mean, those stories are out there. It's it's, you know, the big blockbusters don't always have the best per theater average. And that's where the real story is, I always think. You know, in terms of mm. seeing genuinely how many people want to see this, how much is this making per theater? How much is this making per screen? And it's usually the smaller movies that are in really limited release that do that. All right. So now the ultimate question is, 
Can anything be done to right the path that we are heading down, or is this all inevitable? Less than ticket prices is the only thing that I can think of, but I don't think even that'll work. Uh, I feel like we were onto something with MoviePass for a while there. MoviePass, I think, really showed that people have a desire to want to go to the theater, even to see documentaries, mm-hmm. like Three Identical Strangers and Won't You Be My Neighbor? It was like, what? People are going yeah. to see blind spotting and like, what? what is happening right now? And that was just unheard of how many people turned up to see so many of these smaller films. And I think that if you give people an option to do that, they will take it. But the problem is, Dan, you lower ticket prices, then the bottom line numbers are not going to be uh, higher year over year. Uh, or let me put it to you this way. It's a it's a risk that they're all not yeah, willing to take. Exactly. It's a risk. Exactly. Because it could be higher if more people show up, but people are not willing to risk it. Yeah. They would much rather keep increasing it 25 cents year over year for that ticket price. What are we up to now? Like in New York for a regular standard ticket price, like 16 bucks. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But that's also like it. It's a lot of factors, and part of it is also, you know, like just the rent these theaters are paying for their buildings, you know? Yeah. Another thing, too, is also, I also wonder, do we really need production budgets of $200 million? Because I sometimes look at certain movies that have production budgets of $100 million instead of 200 and they look just as great. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I feel like they do because even in those $200 million movies, there are usually a couple of visual effects scenes that still don't look good. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe maybe minimize your investment. Uh, but like I said, who's who's actually going to be willing to actually take that risk? You know, like, and what do, and what do we know? <laughs> yeah. I, to be honest, the way that I've always seen this going forward is that basically we're going to have a splintering of what movies get seen in certain theaters. And all the major chains are basically just going to show your Disney movies or whatever other studio is going to release a big budget uh, sequel or remake Warner or whatever. Brothers. Yeah, like they're just going to be playing that and everything else will just be in like limited engagement smaller indie chains that are independently operated and i kind of feel like that's already where we're heading but even with that it still just feels like the dominant uh, the dominance of the market is just going to be disney and i i think anybody should be worried when a single company even if they make stuff that you like starts to take all the attention because then that means that dictates how much and what all the rest of us get to see. And that is not a good sign for anything. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so moving off of that, Toy Story 4 is going to open up to big numbers, and the trend is going to continue. And you know what? Hey, deservedly so. Toy Story 4 is an awesome movie. I'm happy to see it succeed, uh, but it still does further along this story that we are painting out here for everyone. Uh, What I want to do is shift focus over to Toy Story here for a bit to talk about the polls because this week's poll we are asking everyone which is their favorite Toy Story film Toy Story 1, 2, 3 and yes 4 is an option for those that have already seen it and of course some people will see it while the poll is still active so I'm going to pass it off to you first Dan which is your favorite of the Toy Story films Toy Story 3 okay Josh Parm 
I'm going to say the first Toy Story. I mean, they're all excellent. And in fact, I just watched Toy Story 3 not too long ago and cried harder than I have cried in (laughs) in a very long time. I literally can't even think of that movie without starting to tear up. Yeah, and it's very, it is very, oh, so good. But there is something about the magic of that first movie to me that they were able to, right out of the gate, Pixar created something that special. And I just think the storytelling in the first Toy Story is so, so good. And that would be my pick. Uh, Toy Story 3 for me. I think it's such a masterful exercise in storytelling. They play so well into the nostalgia, the gravitas of our emotional investment into these characters and everything that we've been through with them and everything they've been through with each other. It is so emotionally cathartic. In that third act, it's it, it, it blows me away that for an animated film to tap into something like that, I've never experienced it before, I think, with any other animated film since maybe, say, The Lion King, maybe. I was an emotional wreck when I saw Toy Story 3. Completely oh emotional wreck. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. And even just the opening credits playing You've Got a Friend of Me, and then it just says, our friendship will never die. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to black. It's like, oh, what is this movie? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you're just like preparing yourself for like the worst. And then of course you have Lotso Hugging Bear, who I always say all the time, the best villains are the ones whose motivations we can completely understand. And that was a great, great antagonist because they took the time to explain his motivations and tell his backstory. And it just worked out so, so well when they get to that uh, dumpster truck scene. Uh, it, it, oh, I can't. Phenomenal. In every single way, I can't even. Okay. Head on over to the polls page. Vote on that. Uh, interestingly enough, last week's poll, we asked everyone which will be the next Best Picture Oscar winner. We're getting to the halfway point of 2019. And so I figured now would be a good time to put our finger on the pulse and see what the people think in terms of the Oscar race right now. So out of all of the possible Best Picture contenders, what do you all think people voted as the number one film they think is going to win Best Picture? Hmm. I think I'm going to say The Irishman. Yeah, probably The Irishman. Just because right now we don't know a lot about many other contenders. (laughs) Yeah, and... It's the one that on paper, you know, with the director and that cast kind of sounds like the one that would jump uh, first in people's minds. Leading the poll with 55 votes is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, that was going to be my other guess. (laughs) Going to win? Really? So here's what I will say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just in uh, defense of of it. I understand that this poll could be a little skewed and that there might be some Tarantino fanboys out there that mm. voted for it. I get it. You know, I also understand it's a popular choice at the moment. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does have very good reviews right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tarantino's career, if he sticks to his whole, oh, 10 and I'm done thing, they may not want to risk, you know, giving him a major type of reward, like a picture director kind of win at the Oscars mm-hmm. on his final film. They might just do it now. Potentially. Uh, Needless to say, haven't seen the film. I know a few people who have seen it, and they don't think it's going to go that far. I think it's going to be a tech and screenplay contender only Mm -hmm. as of now. But who knows? The narrative can always change, you know, as the year goes on. So other contenders could drop off. I don't know if it's going to be like the best picture winner, 
But I do think that it could just, like, even if it's, like, just okay, I think it could very easily coast into a nomination, considering Hollywood is in the title of the movie, you know? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Let's not forget Birdman. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Number two is The Irishman. Okay. Martin Scorsese's prestige film coming out, uh, we think... December because he's probably going to be working on it till the very last minute with the visual effects. Number three is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Marielle Heller film with Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers. Number four is 1917, Sam Mendes' World War One film shot by Roger Deakin, supposedly being done in one take. My current prediction. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, oh, dear God, I can't even imagine. Uh, number five, this was surprising. And I mean, surprising in the sense of I don't think it has a shot in hell, but hey, there you go. Avengers Endgame okay. was number five. Okay. Oh, Lord. Oh. All right. Keep the yeah. dream alive, people. Keep the dream alive. Yeah. Sure, Jam. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, you know what? A nomination may not be out of the cards, in all honesty. It's not no, but not going to no. win. No. I, no, I'm no, exactly. Right now, it is not getting nominated for Best Picture. There is no way. I'm putting that down right now. 100% guarantee Avengers Endgame not going to be nominated for Best Picture. I would actually agree. Mark to time, 11.47 a.m., June 16, <laughs> 2019. Josh Parm, I will hold you to that. We'll see what happens. Gladly. Number six, <laughs> Greta Gerwig's follow-up to Lady Bird, Little Women. Number seven is Harriet. Number eight, The Goldfinch, which I still don't think is going to be a major player. I, I think it's got beautiful boy response kind of written all over it in terms of on paper, we think it's going to be a contender. And then when it actually screens, people will be like, eh, it's okay. Well, well, what's funny is that like on paper, it does have all the things that make it a contender. But I think also on paper, it has everything that makes it something that would be a contender and then would flop. Like, yeah, exactly. How many movies yeah. have we seen? prestigious director based off of a well-known famous book with Mm -hmm. a good cast and good craftspeople behind it. Like all of those, like this had Oscar buzz type movies. It feels so much like it could be that too. Yep. Number nine. I actually genuinely hope that this uh, starts to gain some traction and it could actually happen because this is just one of those underdog stories that sounds so cool. Bong Joon-ho's Palm d'Or winner, Parasite. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, right? (laughs) I mean, and I'm just talking, I think, for this right now. I know we asked for the winner in the poll, but nomination-wise, I mean, Roma got in last year, you know? Let's open up the floodgates. Let's get some foreign films in the Best Picture conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. Number 10, Ford v. Ferrari. And that'll pretty much round out the poll there. There were other choices, but those were the top big vote-getters of last week's poll. So, this week's poll, Toy Story. Favorite film? Head on over. Vote. Let us know what you think. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano De Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for the First Time Watchers Podcast. As well as on Stitcher. And we love interacting with our listeners. So if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talking about what we love. Movies. And you don't have to worry about us going on and on about this and that and the other. And oh, no, look, no, let's no, talk stop, about stop, this stop, minutia Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And shut I wonder up. who shut the up. gas God damn it, shut up. I think that's enough. Oh, my God. Go by during the credits.
before we get to our trailer for this week, which is uh, for Dr. Sleep, I do want to take a moment to just talk about uh, Father's Day for a brief second here. Uh, a question I asked on Twitter earlier uh, this morning was, what are some of your favorite uh, fathers that you've seen portrayed on screen this year? Uh, it could be from, you know, anything, really. Have there been any movie dads that have stood out to you? I thought this would be a fun conversation that we could have here on the podcast today. Um, Will Forte and Booksmart. Oh, gosh. Oh, yes. <laughs> so much fun. Oh, yeah, that, that, that was that fantastic. Really He's really kind of the only one I can think of. So, <laughs> I'll throw an obvious choice out here. Um, making uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark a father in Avengers Endgame was a nice little surprise that added emotional heft to his character motivations and ultimately the, I don't want to use a pun here, but the end game of his uh, storyline. So I actually really, really liked that choice. And of course it was playful uh, and fun in terms of the dialogue that they shared together on screen. Yeah. He was the one that immediately came to my mind when I thought about like best movie dads from this year. Um, the only other one that really kind of sprung to mind in terms of like a positive portrayal of a father, because <laughs> that's sort of the tricky thing. There's a lot of movie right. fathers that they're not all in the best of light. Uh, but I really liked Nick Frost in Fighting With My Family. I mean, I think that movie in general is mm. just a lot of joy, and he's definitely an element that adds to it. I'm going to also uh, single out Winston Duke from yeah, Us uh, for yes. one of my favorite line readings of 2019. You want to get crazy? We can, can get, get crazy. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I uh, can only say this because it's you two on the podcast right now, but, I mean... You gotta give it up for Matthew McConaughey and Serenity. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Sure. Oh, yo, that movie is the gift that just keeps on giving. It is. I'm so happy it's available on now so that everyone can see it and appreciate Ooh, the bad. Oh. Serenity, that movie has to go down as just. Like that, it deserves a special achievement award for the year. Like, it's like in a class all by itself. It really, I can't stop fucking thinking about it. <laughs> you know what? A part of me is tempted. I don't. I don't even like have income coming in right now. And a part of me is tempted to just buy it on Blu-ray just so that I can watch it with my roommates for fun. It's the kind of movie that you say, yo, we all need to get drunk and you need to watch this movie. Yeah, it's for real. It needs to be seen to be believed. <laughs> you know, and, and, and some bad movies I've seen this year, um, I put bad in quotes because you never know who's listening. Um, Pet Cemetery, uh, Jason Clark, I'll throw that one out there. Uh, David Dunn from Glass, Bruce Willis. Uh, what's number one? You know what? This doesn't really count, but why the hell not? I think he's phenomenal. James McAvoy in Dark Phoenix, okay. acting more as like a father figure for all of those other characters. Sure. Uh, <laughs> what about Pikachu? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, can we include Hiccup and How to Train Your Dragon? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. Was, yeah, that was very lovely. The ending of that film is so so sweet. Oh, I kind of just want that to just be playing on a loop on my television all day, so that like every now and then as I walk by, I can see it and just be like, oh, that's nice. The world is nice. It's so. Isn't the world great? <laughs> uh, 
And um, yeah, I think that's good for now. Mm-hmm. Unless if we're, you know, grossly missing uh, someone, and I'm sure we are. <laughs> but hey, you know, there are a bunch of others out there. And uh, if you can think of any, please tweet at us. Let us know uh, which dads from 2019 have stood out to you so far. Okay, now let's head on over to our trailer for this week. A horror sequel to The Shining. Mm. Man, I didn't know if I would be seeing this anytime soon. But then again, the novel by Stephen King only did come out in 2013. So there you go. Uh, Directed and written by Mike Flanagan, who has given us uh, quite a few decent uh, horror films, I would argue. Hush is pretty good. Uh, Ouija Origin of Evil. Gerald's Game. I mean, he's not. It's not bad necessarily and he also did um the haunting of hill house miniseries for netflix oh my god yes and how of course i'm grossly overlooking that (laughs) but as far as like his film work and and yeah i guess you're right the television work there too uh he's definitely proven to be a writer director who has really stood out but in a low-key way so this is hoping to be his big break here it stars ewan mcgregor and rebecca ferguson let's take a look at the trailer for dr sleep You're magic, like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place, a dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. I I always called it The Shining. Okay, um, here's, okay, so here's, I have a couple of different things I want to say about this. One is, I like the visual style. Does anyone here, like, not like the visual style that the film is going for? I, no, I think it looks good. Yeah, yeah, the visuals look interesting mm-hmm. in it. I, I don't think that's our, <laughs> some of our hesitation with this film. Yeah. I think Ewan McGregor is a good choice to play an adult Danny Torrance. Yes. I'm a little sketchy on what the actual plot of this movie is. And like Rebecca Ferguson, I all I could think of when she says the line, hi there, is Ewan McGregor in the prequels going, hello there. <laughs> that was like all I could think of while watching this. Um, but Rebecca Ferguson is someone who um, we've seen before in a couple of other movies. Like, for example, the kid who would be king. Uh, she's willing and yeah, wait a minute, men in black international. She's willing to kind of go for these campy Mm. eccentric kind of crazy horror esque like characters. So 
why am I not as excited for this as I should be? What what's what's lacking here? Because I don't even know if I could quite put my finger on it. Is it an over reliance on nostalgia for The Shining? Is it because the plot doesn't seem to be very very clear to me? What what's going on? Because I don't I don't know. I'll say this: I think it's a good trailer in terms of like I think it's well constructed. It builds your anticipation, but it also looks like I can't. You can't put your finger on it either, right? It feels like it's half a remake of The Shining. Yeah. Or at least like it's half footage from the original Shining. And I don't, I mean, maybe if I had read the novel, I would have a better idea of what it's going to be. And, but it's a little confusing. I don't even know why it's called Dr. Sleep. Maybe someone can educate me on that part of it. Um, because based on just the title alone, I would have no idea if this was a sequel to The Shining, unless if you told me. Yeah. And then on top of that, then there's all this. Stephen King was not happy about the original adaptation of The Shining, which has been very, very well documented. And Dr. Sleep was kind of his answer to all of this. And now Mike Flanagan finds himself in a very weird situation where he's adapting Stephen King's book, but he also wants to exist within the same world as The Shining, which Stephen King did not approve of initially for Stanley Kubrick's vision. So I I, I wonder if the creative differences there could yield a potentially divisive film. Mm. I, I think for me, I just don't really have a sense of what this movie's story is about. And Right. You know, I haven't read the book, so I'm at a disadvantage there. But at least from this trailer, I'm not getting a sense of what we're what this movie is going to be about. And here's what I here's what I could tell. Here's what I could tell is that I think Ewan McGregor is helping the little girl uh, played by Kylie uh, Curran, who also has the shining gift. And he's like trying to protect her, I guess, from Rebecca Ferguson. That's like, yeah, all I got from this. That's what I got, too. Yeah, and to be honest, I don't necessarily mind it when trailers don't tell me what the movie's about, and obviously I think sometimes that could be an asset, but I think when it is that opaque in the trailer to me, and then the crutch that it seems to be using is a lot of imagery from The Shining, it kind of seems like it's saying, don't really concern yourself with what this movie's about, just know that it will remind you of another movie and Mm. that I'm kind of allergic to. And I think that's, what's kind of turning me off a little bit from this trailer. Mm -hmm. Hugh McGregor. He, he really, I, 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 he's one of those actors I genuinely really love, but I, I am like so afraid for his career (laughs) all the time because I always feel like he needs, uh, I always feel like he's in need of a comeback all the time, and then he mm-hmm. always does. Uh, he always does a movie where he always gets outshined by something else, like Beginners, for example. Uh, he was outshined by Christopher Plummer, or The Impossible. He was outshined by uh, Naomi Watts, Christopher Robin. He was outshined by Woody Pooh. <laughs> it's like, and then and then sprinkled in between all of this, you have stuff like Mordecai and um, Jane got a gun. <laughs> and like a bun- uh, American pastoral and it's like the guy just can't seem to in my opinion catch the kind of break that allows us as you know cinephiles to say god we love Ewan McGregor we're so grateful that we have Ewan McGregor I, I feel like that we never come away from any of his movies saying that as much as 
like in terms of think about it this way remember like when he was younger and how promising he was back in like the 90s and early 2000s mm-hmm. and i just feel that he has never quite like his career has never quite ever gone on a path where he is celebrated as one of our best actors yeah he's definitely one of the most undervalued actors in, in working today i feel like and i don't think that this is gonna bring him any fervor although you know one thing that did stand out to me and it's nothing necessarily about the trailer uh warner brothers did move the release date for this film around quite a bit it was actually supposed to originally open up in uh january of 2020 Hmm. and now yeah exactly red flag right but now they moved it over to uh late october early november and you know, like like we said, maybe they tentatively had it in the January release slot because on paper, that's what they thought this was going to be. But it's possible that Mike Flanagan brought them something that exceeded their expectations. So that that gives me comfort. It's possible. I just I never understand why you don't open a horror movie around Halloween, like especially a big one like this. I mean, in this case. I think it's also Warner's, so maybe it's they want to get out of the way of it, Chapter Two. But like, even that isn't yeah. Halloween weekend. So like, what the fuck? Well, this is coming out uh, October thirtieth worldwide, so that and then sense. in the U.S. it'll be <laughs> November eighth. Yeah. So, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I will say that there was one shot in the trailer that I thought was incredibly cheesy, and that was when the room tilted and he slid into the wall. Mm-hmm. I kind of did not like that at all. Otherwise, I like the color scheme. I think that the shot selection looks really great. It was really, really cool to see him walking around the old Shining Outlook Hotel and, you know, that image of him just standing in the doorway where uh, Jack Nicholson chopped it up with the axe. I mean, there's a lot of really neat stuff like that. I was even half expecting uh, the beer match cut where Danny's like got his eyes wide open when his mouth like screaming. (laughs) And then I was I was expecting it to like cut to Ewan McGregor making like the same face at one point. Luckily, they didn't do that. But Who knows what kind of imagery from The Shining will also find its way into this movie. I just hope that it doesn't lean so far into that and it tells its own story. That's obviously the key here. Yeah, I I think – and that's the thing too. Like I couldn't tell if all the shots from The Shining in this are actual shots from The Shining that they just inserted into the trailer or if they're in the movie or if they're recreations. It it was very confusing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, uh, should we move over to fan questions now? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so for this week, uh, we got a couple of different questions pertaining to a lot of different topics right now at the moment, some of it uh, pertaining to the Emmys, some of it pertaining to movies. First question I want uh, to answer here from HLVD Movies is, what is your most anticipated movie for July? Uh, I think uh, it would have to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Midsummer. I will say it is, uh, yeah, July is actually a really good month, I feel. Yeah. Spider-Man Far From Home, Midsommar, Stuber, Crawl, The Farewell, The Lion King, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's a good lineup there. Mm. I do really want to see The Farewell also. Yeah, that looks so good. It, oh, where is it now? I think it's my second favorite film of the year. So I, I'm very, very excited for you all to see that as well. Uh, you know what? I will say, yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because it's a Tarantino film. It's like an event film, it, you know, just like when David Fincher, Christopher Nolan, Paul Thomas Anderson release a film. It's just one of those things. You know, you start to get really, really excited. 
Uh, Midsommar, though, um, probably I'm. That's one I'm probably the most curious about. Ari Aster's follow up to Hereditary, which you all know is very near and dear to my heart. And the fact that mm-hmm. it's two hours and twenty minutes long, Florence Pugh is mm-hmm. an amazing up and coming star. Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of anticipation there for that. Uh, the film I'm actually most skeptical and f- freaking out over is The Lion King. <laughs> uh, I I don't know what to make of that still, uh, but you know, I'm uh, <laughs> just like I'm just throwing my hands up right now in the air. I'm just like, <laughs> you know what? Whatever, man. <laughs> I'm just done with these, with all of these. I. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I mean, the only other one I feel like they could do that would make me go, yes, I am very excited to see this would be Hunchback of Notre Dame. But other than that, I think I'm done, too. I, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I am looking forward to the Mulan, the live action Mulan, only because it seems to be an actual departure from the original. Mm. Yeah. Like they're, apparently, it's not a musical... Uh, let's answer some uh, Emmy questions here for a second. Uh, at Garen Groom, should the Primetime Emmy Awards follow the Oscars lead and go hostless? I think there's nothing wrong with going hostless. Um, <laughs> I don't know yeah. whether they should or not. I mean, eh, I I don't feel like they have to. I mean, I don't really watch the Emmys, really, so I don't really care what they do. I don't really care. I'll just read the winners later anyway. <laughs> Josh, are you at least catching up on some of the miniseries this year? Because I have to say, I think that some of the miniseries I've seen for this year's Emmys are better than most of the movies I've seen this year. Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mentioned this uh, on Twitter earlier that like if you're wondering what happened to the mid-budget adult dramas, like it's mm-hmm. in the miniseries category at the Emmys this yeah, year. Like they went to TV. Where, yeah. yeah, that's where all that content is, those movies that are dealing with subjects that are not just big blockbuster action movies. They're on television right now. Like Chernobyl, 15 years ago, like would have been in theaters. Agreed. Oh, yeah. So would have escaped with Danamora. Yeah, all that stuff would have been in theaters 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Fossey Verdon, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could make a claim for all of them. Yeah, absolutely. David Mitchell Baker, uh, pertaining to the film festivals, because, you know, we're gearing up for that season now. Any early predictions on which films we might see at Venice, Toronto and Telluride? Um, I can tell you, I think the Goldfinch is going to go to TIFF. Mm-hmm. I think Ad Astra will go to TIFF. Obviously, the Palm Door winner, Parasite, will go to TIFF and also probably to uh, NYFF as well. Uh, what else? I think that... Hmm... I think Jojo Rabbit will be a Telluride. That would make sense. Did the Venice Film Festival, was that the one in the news lately for some uh, controversial picks that they're going to have this year? I was hoping not to bring that oh. up, but yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry. God. I mean, that was, I thought that was an onion headline for a brief second. I really, really did. I couldn't believe that that was real. Because it's like one film, all right, you know, I get it. Take the controversy, sure. But you're going to do both of them? Really? And for those that don't know, what we're talking about here is that Roman Polanski and Woody Allen are going to be debuting their new films at Venice, which is so... so it just feels so wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, but we also know that, you know, 
I'm not making any judgment calls here, but sometimes the European markets react to these types of stories about these guys a little bit differently than here in the U.S. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, can anyone see a scenario where Ryan Johnson's film Knives Out premieres at TIFF? Absolutely. And I think 4V Ferrari is feels like a TIFF film, too. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, because Venice comes first. So I'm actually I, I feel like uh, I'm trying to think of what films could go to Venice uh, early on. And one that uh, like I feel like Harriet is a Telluride uh, film. Mm. What about what about Woman in the Window? I think Woman in the Window could play Venice. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that it always has to. Well, well let me ask you this question. Why do you say that? I because I, I mean, granted, the film could have changed, but I remember previews. Like early preview screenings, the word being that it was not good. Yeah, well, Venice doesn't always have to show the best films ever made. <laughs> well, no, but like that combined with the source material and the director who, I mean, I love him, but he's not exactly a festival favorite. It doesn't feel like a Venice pick. Okay. Um, All right, that's fair. I could see like I could I would see Little Women playing Venice before the Women in the Window. The only re- the only reason why I'm a little hesitant on that is isn't Little Women coming like in late December? Yeah, yeah, and I know that they uh, kind of just started doing preview screenings of it recently. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much time they have uh, to get it. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 possible. I do I do think Ad Astra feels like a Venice film. I know I mentioned before Tiff, but I think it could play both. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Do you think Clemency would make another festival want run? I think it needs to. Yeah. I I think that the premiere at Sundance uh, a year ago, and the fact that it's opening so late, so December twenty seventh. I, I definitely feel very strongly that Clemency needs another boost somewhere. Oh, wow. I did not realize it was opening up that late. <laughs> yeah, super late. Yeah. If they want to maintain the buzz for Alfre Woodard, they, they need to. They, they need to. So yeah. um, I wonder where 1917 will debut. That could also be Venice if it's finished. Do, do we think The Good Liar? Uh, I think The Good Liar is a Telluride film. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're probably right. That to me uh, feels like a "Can you ever forgive me?" scenario. Yeah, totally. You're right. You're right. All right. Next question uh, from James Robert Scott on Twitter. I, I, I like this because I, I saw a couple people asking about this lately. Um, he's attending uh, the Edinburgh International Film Festival, and he wants to know: Are there any tips on how to survive film festivals, and what's the best way to start getting connections while you're there? Uh, this is the first year he has an industry and press pass. Uh, well, James, I'll give you uh, an easy reply to this question, and that is talk to everyone. And the way you do that is you ask the easiest question possible. You just kind of gain the courage to whoever's standing right next to you. You just say, hey, uh, what's the best thing you've seen so far at the festival? Anything good? That's it. It's the best icebreaker you could ever imagine. <laughs> and it works every time. Uh, if they don't want to talk to you, they won't talk to you. And that's okay. But most likely, they will tell you what they have seen, what they've enjoyed, and that will open up a conversation. Then you can introduce yourself. Hi, my name is... And then so on and so forth. Um, other tips? Stay hydrated. You're going to be <laughs> running around a lot all day. Literally pack water, drink water constantly. 
Uh, make sure you have little snacks. I always like whenever I go to a festival, I like to stay at a hotel that has an eat-in breakfast. So if it this way, I can have my breakfast in the morning and I can take on the road with me a banana or an apple or something like that. And then I can eat that sometimes literally for dinner. <laughs> it depends uh, on how crazy things get. But pack snacks uh, along with you because the chances that you'll have time to go out and eat are pretty slim. And uh, don't get overwhelmed. Don't panic. You know, there's a lot of crazy things that end up happening. Maybe transportation isn't the best or scheduling conflicts, whatever happens. I remember there was one time where I got all the way to the theater and the theater was 40 minutes away from my hotel. And I realized I left a ticket back in my hotel. <clears throat> so I had to then Uber back to the hotel and then Uber back the other way again. And that ended up costing a lot of money, uh, just the traveling. But miraculously, I was able to make it to the film on time because I uh, got there so early the first time. So needless to say, crazy things like that will happen. Don't let it overwhelm you. Don't let it stress you out. Lean on others for help and you'll have an amazing time. Anybody else have any tips or tricks or anything like that? Or um, I've never yeah. been to a film festival, so I can't say. <laughs> I mean, I've been going to the local Chicago film festival just as like a civilian for a while. Last year was the first time I went as press and uh, yeah, I, I would agree with everything that you said, man. And I think it really just comes down to like, you know, trying your best to have a plan of action to kind of know what you want to see and prioritize as best you can. But also like if things have complications, just trying to roll with it because, you know, at the end of the day, you're at a film festival. You're in a place that's showing a bunch of movies that, for many of them, this might be the only opportunity to see them. So I think just always remembering that, you know, no matter how bad it gets, you're still kind of in like a dream world. And that's always going to be cool. You know what? I'm going to just uh, quote. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to quote, uh, whatchamacallit, um, collateral uh, for a minute here. Uh, Tom Cruise's character says, now we got to make the best of it. Improvise, adapt to the environment. Darwin, shit happens. Eat Ching, whatever, man. We got to roll with it. Exactly. <laughs> that is that is the film festival life in a in a one single quote right there. <laughs> and it's All right. And on that note, uh, we're gonna head out for this week. I do want to let everyone know. I am sorry. I know I'm a little behind right now, but the MVP Film Community Awards uh, for the nominations for our 2015 retrospective will be going up this week I promise I've been uh, bogged down by a lot of other stuff lately but I will be getting that up so you all can start voting on that and we are continuing our series for our Patreon listeners if you head on over to Patreon $1 minimum a month you can get some of those 2015 exclusive podcast reviews from us oh and one other shout out before we go as well um, please head on over if you like the show to iTunes and rate us on there five stars you don't have to leave a comment if you want to leave a comment that's fine but please just head on over and rate us five stars if you like this show please 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 if you haven't already i really 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 would appreciate that a lot uh we're trying to gain more exposure lately and that is right now as far as i can tell one of the best ways that we can do that josh parham where can they find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at jr parham dan bear 
You can find me on Twitter at DancingDanOnFilm. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 147 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. iTunes, Patreon, as I said before, I did it out of order today. Just two very, very important things I wanted to highlight. And thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. 